0: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. On October 6th, the World Health Organization, for the first time ever, endorsed a malaria vaccine. After years of testing, the vaccine was shown to be safe and effective at preventing deaths of thousands of children in sub-Saharan Africa. The WHO's backing of this malaria vaccine is not only the recognition of a breakthrough in scientific research, but really an important moment in human history. Malaria is an ancient plague that has killed humans for hundreds of years, if not millennia. And though malaria has been eradicated in most Western and Northern countries, it still kills over 400,000 people each year, and most of those deaths are among children in Sub-Saharan Africa. My guest today, Margaret McDonnell, is the Executive Director of Nothing But Nets at the UN Foundation. Nothing But Nets is a campaign that raises money and awareness around strategies to fight malaria, including the widespread use of insecticide-treated bed nets, which is a proven way to sharply reduce malaria infections. She is a veteran in the global fight against malaria, and in our conversation, she explains the significance of this new vaccine in ongoing efforts to control and combat malaria in sub-Saharan Africa and beyond. We spend the first few minutes of our conversation discussing recent trends in global efforts on malaria before having a broader conversation about this new vaccine. I do just want to once again emphasize how big of a deal it is that this new vaccine has been approved. It has been a very long time in the making, decades of research have gone into producing a malaria vaccine, and it's a complicated scientific thing to do uh, for reasons that Margaret McDonnell explains in this conversation. And she also notes that there are even more and new promising vaccines on the horizon. All right, now here is my conversation with Margaret McDonnell, Executive Director of Nothing But Nets at the UN Foundation. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Well, malaria is fascinating and has truly sort of altered... The history of the world. Um, it has been with us, some say, you know, it started evolving 2.5 million years ago. Um, so it's been with us for a long time. Uh, many are saying it's the oldest pandemic and likely the, the most deadly pandemic that humankind has ever faced. Um, it you know, many people assume that, you know, a shark or a tiger is the, the world's deadliest animal when it is, in fact, a mosquito. There's been amazing progress against malaria over the course of the last two decades in particular. Um, more than, you know, 60 percent of deaths have been averted. Uh, more than 40 percent of cases have been uh, prevented. Um large part because of, you know, political will and funding and, Mm -hmm. and and mechanisms and programs, um, you know, such as the global fund and the president's malaria initiative and the work of the Mm -hmm. WHO Uh, And of course, country leadership and on-the-ground health workers. So there's been amazing progress against this disease, but still today, uh, it kills over 400,000 people every year, and the majority of which, 67% of which are children under five, um, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. So it, malaria is a disease that has certainly a disproportionate effect on vulnerable people, such as children and pregnant women and in resource strapped, you know, environments and communities and countries. So, um, yeah, there's been amazing progress, but a child still dies every two minutes. And so there's certainly a lot of work to be done, uh, to actually to end the disease once and for all.
0: And, and beyond the, the deaths that are caused by malaria, presumably there's just like a lot of sickness and illness that holds back economies and societies and has just you know devastating impacts within households as well i would imagine
1: yes of course so it's you know when we talk about sort of the context of the sustainable development goals or the global goals the you know the world that we want to see a healthier happier more equitable world malaria sort of sits right at the center of many of these things so um, malaria affects people economically. So at, you know, as close to the household level, it means that parents can't go to work. It means that kids can't go to school. Malaria has a tremendous uh, burden, is a tremendous burden at at sort of the family level, the community level, the country level, and sort of the global economy writ large, particularly in Africa, where 96% or so of malaria uh, is most prominent. Um, and then, right. You also have malaria can be a leading cause of absenteeism from school as well as cognitive impairment of children. So, um, we know that, you know, when kids have malaria, they're not able to go to school or their, their cognitive ability is, is impaired, especially if they have a more serious case of malaria. Um, and there's also other intersections with poverty. It's certainly a disease of poverty and, uh, greatly affects people who don't have access to quality health care. Um, you know, in the United States, we eliminated malaria in 1951. Um, and so, but still today, you know, half the world's population is affected primarily in more resource strapped uh, countries and economies such as in Africa and uh, Asia and parts of Southeast Asia and Latin America. So it's certainly a disease of inequity uh, and a great just historic injustice.
0: So earlier, you referenced the Global Fund and the President's Malaria Initiative. These are programs that were launched in the early two thousands uh, to galvanize international support to fight malaria. You know, recognizing that it is this sort of terrible historic scourge. Uh, And it seems that those programs have been effective in reducing malaria deaths and uh, malaria infections, you know, starting around the 2000s. And it includes programs like yours, like Nothing But Nets, the provision of insecticide treated bed nets in places that are malaria endemic. Can you just describe these kind of prevention methods and measures that have been undertaken, you know, since the mid two thousands to so far reduce from an astronomically high number, uh, the number of malaria deaths and infections. Like what has the kind of global campaign against malaria looked like uh, up until now?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, so like you mentioned, you know, per, around the turn of the century, around 2000, um, Big new funding mechanisms, such as the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, now known to be the Global Fund, the U.S. President's Malaria Initiative, and obviously with great leadership and support and guidance from the World Health Organization Country leadership, and you know, of course, we want to recognize the critical role that health workers and people actually implementing these programs on the ground uh, are playing. Um, but there's, there's been tremendous strides. Um, we, you know, thanks to sort of infusion of resources and innovations, um, we have averted you know over 1.5 billion cases of malaria and saved over 7.5 million lives over the last 20 years. Um, you know, the tools, the innovations that have been created uh, everything on the prevention side from the insecticide treated bed net or long lasting insecticide nets um, and, and, There are some stats to suggest that about 67% of the reduction of of cases of malaria is is in part due to the the bed net and the wide scale sort of scale up and deployment of bed nets uh, as they are extremely cost effective and relatively simple tool to use. Um, But there's other important prevention measures. And, you know, more recently, the seasonal malaria chemoproflex, which essentially has been administered, you know, particularly in really high burden settings uh, for children sort of get ahead of the most endemic malaria season. So there's really like a
0: medicine that that kids would take in malaria prone areas during malaria season.
1: Exactly. Um, You also have, you know, indoor residual spraying, uh, which works well in a lot of settings. And then you have, so there's there's prevention, then there's diagnostics. And the diagnostics have, you know, greatly improved over the course of the last few decades. Uh, Now we have rapid diagnostic tools where essentially you can go into a health clinic if you suspect malaria, have a finger prick, and within, you know, 10 to 15 minutes um, be diagnosed. And obviously that enables then moving on to, you know, the treatment side of things where we have artemisinin. Combination therapies or, or ACTs, um, which essentially allow you know if you're diagnosed, then you can quickly be treated and and hopefully avert sort of a severe case of malaria. Um, and so those have really been you know primary tools that have been used in the fight of malaria over the course of the last couple of decades. Um, and so you know innovation continues. Innovation is needed. These are critical tools, and a lot can be done in terms of scale up and deployment. Um, Yes, but none of them, all of them sort of need to work together as mm-hmm. a suite of tools that are needed.
0: And so it is in this context that the new malaria vaccine that was just approved by the World Health Organization was, was tested and, and deployed. Can you just describe like the pilot tests and, and what that looked like and how, how those were conducted, where they were conducted?
1: Sure. Yeah. So very, you know, it's been very exciting um, to see, I mean, this WHO uh, recommending is the very first vaccine to address malaria ever that has been recommended from the WHO. Um, It's actually the first vaccine to be approved that tackles any sort of parasitic disease because parasitic diseases are extremely challenging. Um, And so essentially, you know, RTSS or Muscurix, um, you know, is the world's first malaria vaccine shown to provide partial protection against malaria and young children in Africa and other highly endemic countries. Um, This RTSS actually was started to be built over 30 years ago. Um, GlaxoSmithKline, and then with, you know, around 2001, uh, they partnered with PATH and with support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they entered into a partnership to develop the vaccine, you know, really focus on infants and young children. Um, And how it works is it actually aims to trigger the immune system to defend against first stages of malaria. Uh, for when the the parasite sort of enters the human host, uh, as we call it. Um, And so it's designed to sort of prevent the parasite from affecting the liver and and multiplying and, and affecting the bloodstream. Um, so in 2015, you know, after clinical trials had been conducted or concluded, the vaccine got a positive scientific opinion from the European Medicines Agency and the WHO, who then said, you know, it looked good enough to sort of recommend a pilot phase. And so that's what's been happening over the course of the last few years. Um, the pilot phase, which was actually funded in part by Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, um, began in 2019. And it worked um, in three countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, Ghana, Kenya, and Malawi. And it really worked through their already existing national immunization programs in those countries. And so since, since the pilot over the last couple of years, they administered, you know, 2.3 million doses Um, and, you know, long story short, which, which just was came out is that, you know, the RTSS vaccine has proven to significantly reduce life-threatening and severe malaria among children by about 30%. um, And, you know, also was really, positive to see that the pilot demonstrated, you know, also the vaccine safety and also really underscored the strong community demand um, for the vaccine. Every time you introduce a new vaccine, as we've learned very well with COVID-19, um, you never quite know how the community will receive will receive it. And, you know, the pilots showed that it was well-received and, and there's a strong demand for it.
0: And you said that the pilot programs, uh, the tests, uh, just included this malaria vaccine in the routine childhood immunization vaccine programs of of the countries, right? That's right. Interesting. So so, and, and it's kind of worth worth noting that uh, many of the countries in the region actually have very robust um, programs to roll out their routine childhood vaccinations. So they just included this in uh, that process in order to conduct like what was seems to be a very massive pilot test.
1: Yes, exactly. And I know initially before the pilot began, that had been a concern because I think the initial clinical trials had sort of had the vaccines being um, introduced at times that were off the regular routine immunization Mm. schedule. But it looks like in the pilot, they fully integrated it into an existing routine immunization uh, you know, program, uh, so that when, you know, children were brought to the clinics to get their other routine child immunizations, they just essentially incorporated RTS in, mm-hmm. into it. Uh, I believe it is a four dose vaccine. So my understanding is it actually extended out. So one of the positive sort of externalities from this is that, um, it actually extends out, I, th- I believe to 22 months. Um, so the idea would be that you'd actually be encouraging, you know, children and their families to return to the health facility for, further out than normal uh, in order to get the fourth and final dose.
0: So 30% effective is sort of like an interesting number. I mean, on the one hand, presumably that means tens of thousands of children under the age of five will not die uh, from malaria because of this vaccine. Uh, On the other hand, you know, I feel like we as a human society have learned a lot about vaccines over the course of the last couple of years, and we are accustomed to like 90, 90%, 95% efficacy. Um, what, I mean, is it because this is a vaccine for a parasite, which is something that is, if not uh, unusual, uh, unprecedented that these these numbers of efficacy are lower than maybe what we've been accustomed to when we think about vaccines?
1: Yeah, it's a great, great question. And so yes, the modeling study that I think the Imperial College of London came out with said that if RTSS vaccine was uh, implemented, it could prevent the deaths of about 23,000 children a year, if the full doses, full series of doses were given to all, you know, kids in the countries, the high incidence of malaria. So obviously, you know, every life is has value. and, And that is, you know, obviously a very positive result. I'd say, you know, the advocacy is, is Certainly, we wish it was higher. And an important, you know, component of this is that. Um, the trials that have been conducted have shown the vaccine to have that effectiveness sort of when used in conjunction with other measures. So such as um, kids sleeping under, you know, an insecticide treated bed net, or in the case of, there was actually a you know, specific study done in Burkina Faso, an additional pilot study that was conducted in Burkina Faso, Mali that tested the efficacy of the vaccine when used in combined in combination with the seasonal malaria, uh, So. Um, Yeah, I think, and that showed that actually the effectiveness, you know, when all those things together uh, could be about reducing by about 70% hospitalizations and deaths. So, you know, not insignificant. Um, I think it's... I guess what I would say about this vaccine is that it's, you know, hugely significant. It's a huge milestone. It's groundbreaking first malaria vaccine ever to be approved. It's a really exciting tool in the toolbox. I think it's just important to put it in that context that it's not the silver bullet, you know, pardon the expression that um, we all wish we had. Right. Um, Even what we've seen with the COVID-19 vaccine is that it's not completely foolproof. Right. Um, So I think what's exciting is it kind of sets a blueprint for how how we could look to incorporate vaccines as a tool in the toolbox, you know, as we Mm -hmm. look towards continuing to make progress against malaria and really work work towards a malaria-free world, which is ultimately Mm -hmm. our objective. Um, There are some... There's a a vaccine called R21 that uh, recently there were some preliminary results that came out and that actually uses the MRNA technology that was utilized in some of the COVID-19 vaccines Mm. that at least in the preliminary results have shown about 77% effectiveness in young children, which is encouraging, but, you know, has not yet been fully piloted. So I think it's. The early results of R21 are, are promising, um, but we, you know, we have to wait to see what phase three brings in terms of providing a clearer picture um, and, and you know, how it could be scaled up. Mm. Um, so it's a great step forward. It's an important step forward, um, uh, but it's not a silver bullet in and of itself.
0: So how do you foresee uh, this additional tool, as you call it, being integrated and incorporated into national and international programs and policies to combat malaria. Like, do you foresee uh, additional funding being raised to roll this out in many countries across sub-Saharan Africa as part of like their broader malaria, you know, mitigation strategies? And, you know, is there like additional funding in like the pot for this kind of, uh, introduction of this kind of vaccine in, in certain places?
1: It's a great question. It's the question of the hour of the week. Mm, um, that's why I'm <laughs> asking you. <laughs> um, so what I think it's, you know, now that we have the WHO recommendation, um, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see sort of how things evolve over the next few months in terms of, you know, there's not currently funding secured for the implementation rollout of this vaccine. What's needed now is, you know, that well, one, malaria endemic countries have to decide, you know, whether or not um, they want to pursue adopting the vaccine sort of as part of their national malaria control program. So obviously, we want to look to, you know, community and country leadership to determine if this is a, a tool that they want to incorporate into their broader um, NMCP, National Malaria Control Program, or strategy. Um, and, you know, global health funding bodies like the Global Fund and GAVI, the Vaccine Alliance, are going to be exploring over the coming months and years about how they might financially be able to support the integration of the vaccine. Um, it's been determined that, you know, the the vaccine, I've seen anywhere from sort of 15 to $30 in terms of for the full four, four dose um, in the series, and that's not, uh, you know, it's not terribly expensive. But compared to some of the the vaccines that are you know currently being executed, like polio or measles, which are you know cents cents on the dollar, it is it's it's a more expensive vaccine. And so there is going to be a question around how to if and how to fund this through what mechanism, Um, I believe the GAVI board is going to be meeting later this year, early next, to decide um, if it will be uptaking, you know, the RTSS vaccine into its um, program. And then the Global Fund, you know, is is facing its seventh replenishment next year in 2022 that will determine basically the pot of money that they have over the course of the next three years um, to to implement programs to address, you know, HIV, TB, and malaria. this will obviously be an important consideration. Um, So yeah, there's still, you know, still questions ahead in terms of um, how this will be rolled out at what scale, who pays for it, et cetera. Um, But again, you know, a really exciting step forward.
0: Uh, Well, Margaret, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you.
0: All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Margaret McDonald. And I always love when uh, I get to do a podcast episode about some great and positive development in the world. And I I do often try to focus on solutions as well. I think solutions journalism is both an underappreciated and very important contribution to journalism more broadly. And uh, I do a bit of it on this show and I'm glad to. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.